recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 28 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend about it. That means a lot to us. Uh, you can also follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're on all of those. Uh, the account name is PR Law Podcast. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or SoundCloud if you'd rather listen and subscribe that way. And we have a newsletter that's running, and it's nice to see that growing at prlawpodcast.club. So please sign up for that so you don't miss uh, a show, prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, how's it going? I'm good. Back in the fair city of, uh, of Toronto. Back in civilization. In Toronto. Um, you know, this is, as you know, this is, and you know, this happens with people wherever you live, right? That people who aren't from there always mm-hmm. say your city in sort of a bizarro kind of way. And I always find it funny when I, um, when I hear people say the city's name that aren't from here, particularly Americans, uh, they actually, you know, the enunciation is very, very clear and concise. It's sort of Toronto, but, uh, of course, everybody who's actually, from here or live here we we just say toronto you just sort of you just let those t's roll you know a good example of this is it drives me crazy but i don't blame people at the same time it's beijing (laughs) because uh if you know any chinese or even if you just hear it mentioned around it's it's beijing uh, not Beijing. And that is so common. Um, but it seems to get, it's one that I will not correct, but that's the one that gets under my skin the most probably. Well, what about actually raise a good point? What about people who put, you know, the emphasis on different syllables mm. uh, with regard to, to Hong Kong? Cause I say Hong Kong, but you know, in, in the United States, it seems to be predominantly pronounced Hong Kong. Yeah, the, the emphasis. Have I you know. noticed? Have How's you it going that? in Hong Kong? Yeah, I have noticed that. Um, although I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if there's a right or a wrong here. It's just uh, just sort of a, a, a difference I've noticed in, uh, in the way that it's pronounced. Yeah. And despite living here for more than a decade, I, I don't think there is a proper way, uh, whichever way you kind of want to do it. Um, but speaking of, of Hong Kong, Ewan, one of the things I wanted to mention off the top here, and I kind of wanted to ask you about last week about traveling during COVID. Um, but it, it came out this week that Hong Kong and Singapore have signed an agreement. And uh, as of next month, there will be travel between the two places um, without any quarantine, uh, without any of those kind of requirements. And it's the, the first kind of bubble that's opened up in Asia like this. Um, but the interesting thing is, uh, as soon as the, the deal was signed, obviously, even I, I was looking at flights, I thought, hey, Singapore is nice. It's not that far away. You can pop down there. Uh, right away, the prices of airline tickets skyrocketed <laughs> because everyone has <laughs> of course. the same idea in both places. So I think I still have to wait a while. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure the same thing happened with hotels. All of a sudden, prices 
prices yes. for accommodation probably went through the roof as well. Yeah. And then the other thing this week to you, and I don't know if you've seen much of it in, in Canada. I know it's in sort of in the international news, but Thailand is going through a, uh, a very big protest movement at the moment. Uh, it actually looks similar to Hong Kong last year uh, with thousands of people blocking roads and, and demanding uh, basically democracy. Um, and that's, that's been, um, you know, Thailand's an interesting place because it, it goes through military coups. I think there's been six of them. And, and recently, several of those are recent and the country still ticks along, uh, fine. I mean, the GDP there is, is, is relatively high for Southeast Asia. They're growing quickly. There's a lot of, uh, uh, foreign direct investment into the country. Uh, but, um, there's a big standoff there now and it has to do with the monarchy, which is, has traditionally been really sensitive. Um, so it's, it's, I think another example of just the unrest that's kind of gone around the world in the last several years. Yeah. Well, and also how it's just been depicted and disseminated through, through media, right. Where, whereby you can have people in a particular country that can look elsewhere and say, well, Hey, if they're doing it, why can't we do it too? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there is a similar call in all of these, I would say, even in, even in the United States, like there's call for just more representation, more understanding, more fairness, I guess. Uh, to some degree. And uh, yeah, we're living in a, in a very volatile time. Uh, anything else you want to mention, Ewan? No, um, only that, you know, you'd sort of asked about what was travel like. Mm, yes. uh, and, you know, and I, I have to say it was um, everything was very, very, very well done. Um, I mean, going through Pearson International in Toronto, which is an insanely busy airport mm. at the best of times. It, again, it was just a quick in and out. It, there was no traffic. There were no lines. Everybody was was social distanced, masked, um, and the same for the airlines it, themselves. You know, on that point, I have a, a good friend named Steve Chow, actually, who might be known in your city. He was uh, a reporter for CTV for a very long time. Uh, and yeah, now that's he's right. I remember him. Al Jazeera. Uh, he took a photo on his Instagram. He's on his way to Washington, D.C. And the picture is scary because it's him sitting in his airline seat with with a the you know the visors the plastic visors that come down across your entire face and then a mask yeah. under that and he said both are required for the entire flight continue the debate with us on social media join us on linkedin facebook twitter and instagram at pr law podcast all one word p-r-l-a-w podcast send us your questions now by email to ask us at prlawpodcast.com that's all one word ask us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag prlawpod that's hashtag p-r-l-a-w-p-o-d all right, you and we talked about last week. We saw a lot of interest online on the subject you you spoke about last week, and so I'm, I'm excited to find out what you've got on deck today. Well, this week, Cam, I wanted to talk about workplace investigations, and I know you know we've sort of discussed this really briefly on on some prior episodes, but I kind of wanted to do a um, a, a deeper dive. It's um, it's becoming more and more commonplace in the employment context. And, you know, I get asked a lot of questions about workplace investigations, either by employers who are, who are looking to conduct one or by employees who find themselves subject 
to one. So I thought it might be a, a good topic for us to, to touch on this week. Yeah. So this is a really broad subject, right? Because you could have a workplace investigation that's sort of expansive for some criminal behavior uh, or just HR issues. Like it seems like there's a, a lot falls under this category. Well, yeah, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, they have, I've attended all day seminars uh, discussing this topic. You can take courses that last weeks on it. So, um, you know, to suggest that we're going to do the issue justice <laughs> in a in a small segment on our show. Um, well, we're I mean we're we're not we're just not. So we're going to take some very very broad strokes. But mm-hmm. of course, if anybody has any comments or questions uh, following this, then you know maybe we can we can sort of expand on that in in subsequent episodes. Yeah, absolutely. So so go ahead. I, I, I mean, one of the, you know, one of the first questions that employers ask themselves when faced with a complaint, right? And this is really where the, the workplace investigation comes about. You have a complainant that comes forward or perhaps several complainants um, with, with a concern or an issue. It could be something, um, you know, around discrimination or sexual harassment, any number of issues that employees bring forward and the employer is sort of left in a situation where, you know, they do have, um, have some duty in most jurisdictions to investigate the matter and look into it. So the next question becomes, well, how do we do that? What, what does that look like? And, you know, the first question an employer has to ask themselves is, do we want to deal with this internally or do we want to go externally? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes, Cam, the scope of the investigation, it doesn't require retaining an outside expert. Sometimes you can deal with this internally through um, through your HR department or, or through management. You know, however, you know, the issue there is always going to be the risk of bias, right? It's always going to be more pronounced when an internal investigator is, is tasked to sort of to look into it. And, you know, and that's just kind of an obvious point by nature of their position in the company, right? That they may lack a certain independence or, or impartiality that, um, an external investigator can, can bring to the table. Yeah. And it's, it's Um, that appearance of potential conflict, right? Like, or, or bias, because maybe the internal investigators are doing things properly and by the book and without judgment, but people have to feel that and think that and observe that as well. And there's just that suspicion if it's an internal, internal investigation. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And these are sort of, you know, I I think kind of the chief concerns and that you, you, you sort of jumped right ahead in talking about that apprehension of bias. I mean, that's always going to be the largest concern, whether you're dealing with an internal investigator or an external investigator. So, you know, here's just a couple of quick bullet points, Cam, in terms of what you can do um, to sort of stay away from any accusations or, you know, any apprehension of bias. So okay. the first point is, is it, sorry, sorry, Ewan, is this see, from the company's perspective from, from management who's going to execute on a, on an investigation? Is that right? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes, absolutely. Ahead. This is from, from management's perspective. And actually, I guess before we get there, um, before we talk about apprehension of bias, let's talk about mandate. So let's, let's assume for a moment that the company decides, well, you know what, we're concerned about an apprehension of bias in terms of dealing with this internally. So we're going to hire an external investigator. Well, you know, the first thing is make sure you get the right investigator to do it. What are the issues that are on the table that are being dealt with? Because that's going to determine the type 
and specific investigator that you bring in. And, you know, there's all kinds of really, really sensitive issues that you have to look at and address here, Cam. So, for example, let's say the complaint involves um, uh, a group of women and they're all persons of color and they're raising allegations of sexual harassment. Well, in that particular context, bringing in someone that looks like me, for example, uh, uh, you know, a 40 something white male may not be the best investigator for the job. Um, not because I don't have any particular experience doing the work, but because I may not be conscious of particular issues, um, because my lived experience is going to be markedly different than that of a woman of color. So, Again, it doesn't mean you can't bring in that white male investigator, but it's a consideration. It's something to look at, something to consider and make sure the mandate is clear. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who does the investigator need to speak with? What are the timelines? What are the sensitivities? When investigations go bad, they usually go bad because that clear mandate hasn't been established by the employer before the investigator has been chosen and retained cam. So that's really, really, really important. Get all your ducks in a row before you pick up the phone and call somebody to come in and, and look at what's going on. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, and then we talked about that apprehension of bias, right? So here's a couple bullets to consider if you're an employer and you're bringing somebody in to investigate, to make sure that the investigator, um, even if it's an internal person, you have to make sure that they, A, they stay neutral, right? So that any evidence that witnesses are, are, are being asked pursuant to an investigation, that you're not asking them leading questions. Leading questions demonstrate that there's, there's some sort of prejudgment of the issues on the part of the investigator, right? So stay neutral in the questions that you're putting to witnesses. Uh, be consistent that, you know, any sort of disparate treatment of the various parties being investigated inherently you're going to land in some apprehension of bias. So if you have a complainant that you're interviewing and then you have a respondent that you're interviewing, you can't go really aggressive with regard to one and then really restrained with the other. The approach should be consistent from one witness to the next. Yeah. This Um, this is all good. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Keep your, keep your notes, make sure your investigator keeps their notes, right? Destruction of any sort of investigation evidence can be construed as bias. Um, don't go on fishing expeditions. And again, this sort of goes back to the mandate, right? The mandate should establish the scope of the investigation. And then the scope of that investigation should mirror that mandate. And it should mirror what the actual complaint being made is. We don't want people going down rabbit holes, um, when you're, when you're conducting the interviews, stay focused, stay on task and, and stick with, stick with what's on the table in terms of the mandate. Um, and and then sort of that last bullet cam is whoever the ultimate decision maker is, you know, whoever internally for the employer is going to be the one pulling the trigger, um, around any disciplinary measures here, they should stay out of the fact finding interviews. And again, because that's just for the simple reason that it may unfairly influence the outcome of the investigation. Right. That last one there, I think, is a really good point. Uh, well, I mean, I think they, they, they all are. I mean, Ewan, I guess my, my question out of all of this, like, I, I think that's, that's good. And I know, I know it's in management's interest to do this properly um, and to sort of make sure that everything is done 
by the book and according to sort of rules and procedures to protect themselves down the line in case there's a problem. But in terms of when, when an investigation is underway internally in a company, you talked about being able to interview or talk to the staff involved. What other tools do they have um, or, or, or what other things do they have access to to try and piece uh, a story together or piece, uh, you know, evidence of a problem together. Right. Well, I mean, part of the fact finding process could involve any number of things. So, you know, company emails, that's usually one of the first places you go. Um, is there anything in writing that we can, we can sort of point to and review and examine that might give us some, some direction in terms of what the issues are? Are there text messages, um, anything, anything along those lines, any social media posts that may speak to the issues that are being raised in the complaint. So those are good places to start. And then of course, you know, the, the interviews themselves, and this can be a difficult step in the process. Who do you interview? How do you determine, um, who the appropriate people are? You know, if a, if a complainant comes forward and addresses one name, um, and then you, and, and you interview the, the respondent and that individual raises four or five other people who can, can speak in, in their defense. Well, do you have to interview all four or five of those individuals? So there's a lot of these sort of considerations that can come up real time during the investigation. But, you know, one thing that you have to be really, really conscious of Cam when conducting the investigation. And again, as an employer, this is a relevant point, whether you're dealing with it internally or whether you've retained somebody externally is that anybody that you have sort of pointed the finger at um, as committing some sort of wrong based on allegations that have been raised by a complainant. They have certain rights in this process. So, you know, as an employee, um, you know, the employer doesn't have carte blanche to sort of drag you through the mud. If they intend to bring you forward to be interviewed for the purposes of, of an investigation, you know, here, here are some sort of key points that they need to establish as well. I mean, the employee in this case has the right to know the evidence against them prior to being examined. Mm. So you have to, you have to, whether you're relying on emails or text messages, whatever the, whatever the, the accusations are or the allegations are, the employee has to be provided with some idea, some sense as to what it is that they're facing before you sit down and okay. examine them. Um, you and on this, on this point, this kind of harkens back to what we talked about last week a little bit when dealing with your managers or your superiors. If there's an investigation and you are called into a room with one or two or three or more people to interview you or talk to you about something, this is another example where I think the employee probably wouldn't feel comfortable sort of asking for the evidence against them that has been collected already. I, I, I wish employees would be bold enough to do that, but I can see why this would be something very difficult for them to do, yet something very important for them to do also. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I've uh, some employees in these situations, they they want to retain counsel to sort of aid them in this process. And that's certainly something you can do. And I've certainly represented employees in these circumstances where they've been asked to come in to speak to a particular allegation and they haven't been provided with all the evidence. Well, in that cir circumstance, those, that situation, no, the employee doesn't have a, a, an obligation to simply walk into a firestorm when they haven't been provided with all the information. So yeah. Um, you know, if you're an employee and you're sort of 
faced with that situation, you may want to sit down with counsel. And again, uh, the level of involvement can can vary. I mean, it can be in an extreme case that that employee retains counsel who represents them, who attends any sort of interviews pursuant to the investigation with the employee to make sure the investigation is being conducted properly. And then they're not being asked any questions that fall outside the scope of, you know, the particular mandate. Um, it may also be that you are on the sidelines as counsel providing some advice and perhaps, you know, ghostwriting, perhaps ghostwriting mm-hmm. written statements or responses to in- inquiries around the allegation from the employer. Um, so, you know, there's different different roles that counsel can play here. But I mean, if you do find yourself subject to an investigation as an employee, you may want to take the time to sort of sit down with counsel on it. Yeah, just as a general rule. And I think these things probably you and I, my guess is people probably don't don't know these two points that you just made, which is one, if, if, if you're part of an investigation or the target of one that you should ask for the information or the evidence against you. And then two, if you don't get it, that you have some recourse kind of. So to talk to a lawyer if you haven't already uh, at that at that stage, I think this is sort of golden information for you. I didn't know that that, that employees had these rights myself. Well, again, and you know, we like everything else on this show, Cam, we always have to yes. throw <laughs> Proper a salt in that gargantuan disclaimer um, that, you know, what employees are entitled to and what employers are entitled to do varies from, from jurisdiction and country to country, right? So these are sort of some broad strokes and broad principles. But again, all the more reason to sort of sit down with counsel who can give you some, some further advice in terms of what the specific requirements are or the specific restrictions are um, wherever it is that you may live. Now, I just wanted to quickly try and whip through a few more of these sure these points in terms of what a complainant or sorry, what a respondent is in, is entitled to. Um, if somebody does level allegations and you find yourself subject to a workplace investigation. So we talked about the right, you know, the evidence to be provided to you before being examined. Um, you know, that individual also should be given an opportunity to provide a full response to whatever that evidence is. And again, this does go back, Cam, as you mentioned to, to the, you know, performance improvement plans that we talked about last week, just because you're faced with a series of, of allegations or complaints doesn't mean you're not entitled to provide your perspective or your account of events. So, you know, really, if you want to if you want to conduct an appropriate investigation as an employer, you have to give that individual an opportunity to respond to the to the allegations. Um you know, they have they, they also have the right to call any additional witnesses to support their position or to counter any of that evidence that already has been offered. So that's important, too. And that's pretty common that, you know, somebody who's faced with a. Uh, with allegations of wrongdoing and in pursuant to a workplace investigation, they're going to say like, well, you know, talk to Bill, talk to Sue, talk to Sally. They can kind of, they can, they can give you some perspective on, on, on these allegations and can confirm that, you know, there's nothing to them. So you have to look into that stuff, right? So these are, again, this is all very, very broad strokes. I understand, but really things that employers should be conscious of when looking at, conducting investigation. You know, when these things come up, Cam, employers always want to have them done right away, right? They, they want to get the problem solved. They want to get it dealt with. They want to move quickly. And I can understand that. And I've all, all often find myself on the receiving end of it when employers like, we want to have this done within a week. It's like, well, 
if we need to talk to seven or eight witnesses, we're not going to have this done in a week. It's not going to be done. That's not how it works. You need to take time. There needs to be procedural fairness in the process. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, is that you don't want to cut corners because if you could cut corners and you ultimately end up terminating um, an individual who is subject to some of these allegations and, you know, they retain counsel and then that counsel wisely so starts poking around in terms of the the context and the the procedures of the investigation and find that there is all kinds of corners that were cut and holes in the process well you know you could find yourself with with, with the whole thing being thrown right out. right and or yeah it's worse um I, the last question i have on this you really is just like in the clients that you have worked with in the past or that your your other partners or other 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 colleagues uh, or people in the profession like what what would be the number one thing that employers are, are tend to do wrong or tend to misunderstand um, or, or sort of misinterpret um, when, when they're starting these things or, or want to start an investigation? Great, great, great question. And I would say that the number one issue that I come across on this point is employers failing to provide adequate disclosure to employees that they turn around and terminate pursuant to a complaint that was raised, that they don't provide the employee with the evidence against them and they don't provide the employee with an opportunity to respond to the allegations. That's it. That's the that's the biggest thing. I have defended a whole host of employees who have found themselves in those situations where I've turned around and I've said to the employer, sorry, this isn't going to fly. Um, you didn't provide my client with any of the evidence um, against them. You didn't provide them with an opportunity to respond. And that's a big, big problem for you in your case. So employers, you know, again, I know you want to try and deal with the with the situation quickly. That's fine. Um, if you if you're looking to try and move quickly, bring somebody in who can help you and make sure that things are done properly and you're not cutting these corners. Because again, if you if you don't tick off all the right boxes, then the whole thing may be for naught in the end. You and I understand. Sorry, now I have a follow-up question. So this is my last question. Um, um, why wouldn't the employers present the evidence? It seems to me like it would be in their interest to, to share that with the employee. I understand how maybe they would end up not giving them an opportunity to respond. Um, I can see that happening like if you have evidence against somebody that's that's damning or definitive then then you feel like you don't need to talk to them so that's a, that's a good one but why wouldn't they share the information yeah I, I mean great great question um i i i don't know i mean i think if you know if i was to sort of speculate at least based on my experience again it's it's often there's either some broken telephone going on internally where you know management is communicating with HR and they're speaking about these allegations and they simply say, you know, just get rid of this individual, um, let them go. And then you have a poorly drafted termination letter, which raises allegations of wrongdoing, but then provides no clarification as to what that wrongdoing was. You know, I can also recall a case I dealt with where an individual um, was contacted over the phone and presented over the phone um, with management on the call, he was completely, you know, blindsided and presented with 
all of these things that he had allegedly done. And then, you know, the employer said, what do you, what's your response to this? And, you know, the client, my client said, well, Hey, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't do any of this stuff. I can tell you, I mean, I I've never heard of this. I didn't do it. And they said, well, we think you did. So we're letting you go effective immediately. And the whole conversation lasted nothing more than about 10 minutes and that individual was gone. So, you know, again, the employer in that circumstance may have thought, well, Hey, we did our due diligence. We called him, we told him, um, what he did wrong. And then we subsequently let him go, but you didn't really give him an opportunity to respond. He was blindsided. He wasn't provided with anything in writing and you can't really argue that, you know, an appropriate investigation was conducted over the course of a 10 minute phone call. So again, it's just sometimes employers are cutting corners or, you know, they just don't think, but that procedural fairness, that issue, it's really, really critical to to, you know, an investigation that's going to be going to be upheld if it ever finds its way into a courtroom. Yeah. And these are these are uncomfortable. I, I, I know management doesn't enjoy doing these investigations and obviously employees don't either. Uh, so hopefully it's it's not something that people deal with a lot. But um, if you do, this is certainly certainly valuable things to keep in mind. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. I won't blame you if you don't know the answer to this, UN, but I will ask it right off the top. Are you familiar or do you know about content marketing? You know, I, I feel like you blindside me on this. I know. Every I mean, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel like a bit well, of a clown here. <laughs> well, the reason I ask. Content marketing. I mean, I mean, I know I, I understand what content means. And I understand marketing what means. marketing means. I have yeah. some sense as to what I think content marketing means, but I bet it doesn't mean what you're going to tell me it means. Well, I, I ask because you are a very well-educated, smart, erudite individual. So this proves the point that content marketing is not that well known. And that's why I sort of bring it up. It is not really new, but it has picked up a lot of um, momentum, I guess, especially with COVID-19. And it's a key tool, I think, in in a communicator's sort of arsenal. This is a little bit more on the marketing side, uh, but not necessarily. I think it can be used for for a number of different things. So in, in short, content marketing is creating content uh, an article, a video, a blog, uh, you know, an infographic, something that you can post on your website or somewhere, the company's website, um, that is picked up in search engine optimization. So Google's crawling and, and finds that article and then indexes it. Um, and then you get more exposure. So if you have a regular company, um, you, you may have uh, an about page and you might have the homepage and maybe a contact us and you know products and services offered, whatever those might be. But then you would want to have a, a, a blog or a news section or something because once Google indexes your sort of company information, that's good. If someone's searching for your company, they will find you, right? But if someone is searching for, in your case, you an, a, an employment lawyer in Toronto, Toronto, uh, you know, then it's, it's an issue because they wouldn't know what your, 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 your partnership is or what your name uh, of the firm is. Uh, so it'd be more difficult without advertising and things like that. So content market marketing is really to kind of a- address this issue. 
Um, and it is, it is heavily tied in with the SEO, search engine optimization, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And this is something that is actually getting more and more complicated. Um, but there are services online where you can search for your subject area. Uh, so let's say you're a sporting goods store and you sell tennis rackets or something like that. Um, if you type in uh, tennis rackets, it will come back these services and tell you this is what people are searching for on uh, about tennis rackets. These are the questions being asked. And you can take this information and go onto your your own website, your own blog, write something, create something that answers these questions because it's automatically linking to the people asking it because you already know that it's a big question that a lot of people are asking. And this link brings people into your company because they're searching for something. They see an article on something, they click it. And before they know it, they're on your company's website. And once they're there, then you can sort of market or sell or, you know, do something to kind of retain them. So does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So basically you're saying, you know, your your natural inclination is as a business owner developing a website is you want to tell prospective customers what it is that you do. But it sounds like what you're suggesting is what would be almost better is to go and search for what specifically it is that customers are looking for and then tell them how you can address those those issues is is that sort of sort of what you're saying it, it might not even be that directly related so in the tennis racket example the article wouldn't be about you offering tennis rackets at a good price it would be a legitimate interesting researched article about tennis rackets and what it's meant to do is to give you sort of thought leadership in the space and to sort of show your knowledge and you know um maybe institutional history in this field um that ultimately wins them over over time and and the one thing that you absolutely don't want to do in content marketing is hard sell um, because people don't want to read an ad they tune out very fast in those cases so a lot of the best content marketing is legit articles and you know there's one interesting wrinkle that i i, I see a lot now if you're for instance now doing an online business and you're offering a software or or a product or something in a specific field what a lot of these companies have done is written an article called, you know, top 10 CRM software or top 10 ice hockey skates or whatever it might be. And on that list, they will put their item first, but legitimately review the others and put maybe, you know, nine more underneath, um, you know, linking to their competitors and, and doing that sort of thing. But the thing is, People sometimes don't know what page they're on, and this is a good opportunity for you to sell in comparison to your competitors. Because oftentimes when you want to buy something, you and like in your case, um, speakers, for instance, if, if it was something sort of media related, you may end up on a website that talks about, um, you know, the, the, the speakers that they believe and they've tested that are the best, which happen to be their own. Um, but because you've already got the reader on the page, you've already got their attention, how you write 
the things, or how you write the paragraphs, how you structure the arguments can be quite quite powerful in, in selling. So again, it's not direct in a way, um, but it's a way to absolutely generate a lot of traffic to your website where then you can take it from there. Huh, that's really, really interesting. So, I mean, is this sort of, a, I mean, clearly this must be a subset areas of specialization in, you know, in SEO. I mean, are there professionals who are dealing exclusively with with this stuff that you can kind of retain as a as a business owner to come in and and effectively improve your the dissemination of your product yeah absolutely so there's content marketing professionals out there that you can hire and actually it's not really that expensive or it shouldn't be uh that expensive but i i want to give you a couple of examples just from covid because i did come across uh recently an article on the content, the increase in content marketing during COVID and some of the creative things that businesses have done. So, I mean, one example is a a barber shop in the US. I mean, during the lockdowns, the barber shop is closed and, you know, everyone had their COVID hair uh, after not, not getting a haircut for a long period of time. So, you know, the barber shop did a video showing people how to cut their hair at home how to at least, you know, not do a, a, a fancy involved haircut, but how to do something simple that sort of deals with with your issue. And at that time, with barbershops closed, this is something that people were looking for. So that kind of a, a content marketing page or article can do really well. Uh, and then they get to know your brand. Again, it's not a direct sale, right? They're just giving you some advice for, for how to deal with something. Um, but it, it, there's a lot of goodwill uh, behind that. Um, another example, if it's a, if it's a restaurant that you have that's online, uh, and you've been closed for a long time, I mean, maybe you throw up a, a recipe for one of your, you know, recommended dishes or one of the things that you happen to make at the restaurant. That's really popular that you don't mind actually getting the recipe out there on, but stuff like this. Um, and it, it helps. It really does help. Uh, it helps from a branding perspective. Um, but ultimately, this is done for a sales perspective because you, you do want to see a return on investment in creating this because it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to just sit down and write an article that's valuable, that has information that people are looking for, that's credible. Uh, it's not something you can just sort of whip off the top of your head. Um, but but the, the benefits are, are big. And I'm, I mean... It's, it's well known that it's it's spreading quickly and it's quite prominent. Um, it's quite prominent already. I see it on a lot of businesses' websites, usually under a blog page. They'll call it a blog. Um, but, but it's definitely something that I think businesses have to keep in mind because there's communications benefits here too, aside from just the sales side. Well, and as I know, you're in the business of words, Cameron, as a, uh, as a PR and communications guy, I suspect that if there's an opportunity to sort of manipulate this line of, of business, this line of work, that there are people that are out there doing that. I mean, is it, this, this sounds sort of ripe for opportunity to sort of um, make kind of bold accusations or disclaimers or, um, you know, raise issues to try and put your business ahead of, of competitors. I mean, have we, have we seen much in the way of sort of manipulation of this, of this product in that regard? No. Um, 
again, this industry may evolve for sure. I mean, maybe it will go down this path, but I think people don't respond well to negativity if you're sort of slamming a competitor. I see what I do see, especially on some software websites, is they will create a page saying, you know, our product versus A, and they'll name the competitor and actually do a comparison of the two. But when you read them, they do look legit. Like you can see they're, they're, they're favoring their own product, but it's close enough that if you didn't know, uh, you would say that it was an unbiased report. They will praise the other product. They will, you know, put prices in there, even if it's less than their product, that sort of thing. Um, but you can use words, like you said, to just manipulate enough to say, but overall, you know, this, our product is the one, um, that, you know, that does these things that are the most important. Um, and so there's a way to kind of, to kind of bring that together. Um, so it's, it's a very, it's a very lucrative field. There are people out there doing it and, um, I don't want to give away the store here, but there are, it's become such a big industry, Ewan, there are services of which I do use one where you can type in tennis rackets or employment law, or, you know, like I said, ice hockey skates or, or whatever it might be. And the software will go out there, find the questions that are being asked in search engines index those, then go out and search for credible information on those subjects and compile it into a page for you automatically. So we're talking about like sourced links that you can just, you'll have to sort of fix it up. So it's a a finished article. Um, but you know, it gives you a draft or a blueprint that already has the key questions on social, the key facts that you want to include in the article and all of the links and sources to that. It's, it's quite incredible actually. Wow. That's, that sounds insane. Um, so let me, let me ask you this, Cam, any sort of neophytes such as myself in this regard and anybody else out there who's running a business, I, I mean, how would you recommend, what would you recommend as sort of a, a first step in terms of trying to wade into, into these waters. So, I mean, one thing I've done in my career a lot and I did at the exchange and we're, we're, we're now doing it in my current role, um, at Tencent as well. I, I do think now that companies to some degree, I mean, depends on the industry they're in obviously and the resource and staffing levels, but every company is a media company, um, to some degree. And I mean, this has been said for a while, but I think this is a good example of that. So if you're just getting started, I mean, I think my advice is to just create a, a blog, you know, on your website, create a page where you can write articles and publish them. It doesn't need to be complicated. Um, but think about the issues in your industry. And I would start that way because you do want to ease into it. Um, you're not going to go for all the data and all the, the stuff right off the top. Um, I do think you should start this way. Um, and then over time, you know, there are tools where you can search to find out what is happening, you know, what people are asking for, what, what are hot topics, and then begin to sort of tailor some of your content to, to those things. You know, the, the real benefit here, Ewan, which I haven't mentioned is, is, is cost because technically you don't need to hire anyone. There is going to be some time cost of putting this stuff together. But when you consider the costs for advertising or, or client retention or, you know, getting new clients or new customers, um, you know, that, that, that's, that does cost a lot. And, um, content marketing is one way that is quite low cost that you have complete control over and that you can use to bring people sort of into your orbit and into your, into your business. And, and that's, 
probably the number one reason why it's 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 so effective. And there's a lot of spinoffs here too. So again, if you're a company and you're on social media, as I, as most businesses are now, um, you know, if you create a blog article or you create a, a slideshow or a video tutorial of something, I mean, one, once it's on your website, you can also use that to push out on social and get people to sort of click through and read it that way and add add you. Um, so there's a lot of knock-on effects here where you get a lot of benefit from it. Hmm. I think, you know, I think my, my biggest takeaway from what you just said was every company is a media company. And, and that's, <laughs> that really sort of resonated with me. The idea that it doesn't really matter what you're doing anymore. If you run a business in this day and age, then you are a media company to some example, because you have a footprint online. Um, that's, that that's yeah. kind of a scary thought. Actually. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things I often try and fight against, especially with people who have been in business for a very long time, is the idea that you do a news release and then you've got social media separately or your blog separately. And and this is a historical way to look at it. Um, but it's not it's not relevant at all. Like what is a press release? A press release is something that you write and put on your website and you email out or you fax out or you used to do. That's that could be a blog post. It could be anything, right? It's just the we call it a news release, and because it's a news release, we write it in a certain way. But I, when I talk to companies, I try to get them to rethink this entire thing. Content is what you need to create because content is going to allow you to promote your business. It's going to allow you to prepare for crisis communications, to build. Um, an audience that begins to trust you. And if something bad happens down the line, you've got direct access to them. You don't have to rely on a TV station or a newspaper to filter your information before it gets to the public or to your customers. Um, so these are all reasons why you would want to do uh, content marketing. That's great advice. Um, when we're done the show, Cam, uh, I want to compare calendars and uh, and book a session with you <laughs> to, uh, to try and get this get this up and running with, you know, with my business a I, bit better. I honestly, I mean, this is me because I'm a bit of a computer nerd as well, but like I do find it interesting. And I, I think because I, I like things where you can see the result immediately. Like if you write a couple of articles and you post them, um, you know, it takes a few days for Google to index it, but pretty quickly you can see the results of your work um and along these lines you and i mean we've just launched a newsletter for for this podcast but that's another thing that businesses can do as well and it's not that you have to send them something every week or every month uh, but it, you get their email address it goes into a database and you don't know what's going to happen down the line you know COVID happened for instance like there might be times when you need to communicate directly uh with your clients and and this is this gives you an opportunity to, to, to do that. So that, yeah, that's why it's valuable for sure. Yeah. That's a really good point, right? You just, you don't know. It's that idea of, you don't know what the impact is going to be. I mean, I think, you know, my partners that I work with, they're brilliant, brilliant, brilliant lawyers, really, really at the top of their game. Um, but you know, we're not particularly well-versed in this kind of stuff. And sometimes that can be a bit of a barrier in terms of trying to, market these ideas or, or put them forward as something that businesses should engage with because they don't have that sort of experience and I don't have that sort of experience. So it can often be a tough sell, but I think you raise a really, really good point that, you know, the sky's sort of the limit here and you don't necessarily know what that impact is going to be until you take that, you know, first step off the ledge into the deep, dark unknown cam, right? <laughs> two, two final points here. Um, I think another benefit of this is just that, I mean, 
it's, it's, it's much cheaper now to build a website or to add a blog to a website, um, almost zero if you already have a website. Um, you know, if you want to do a, a video update for your clients or if you want to, um, you know, do some sort of tutorial or talk, um, that is very reasonable to do. If you buy a, a live webcam, you can actually broadcast live on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter all at once, all for free. Um, there's no cost to do this sort of thing. So, I, I mean, that that's also uh, extremely valuable. And then talking about business, I, I, we've talked about this before, you and I don't think on the podcast, though, but, um, you know, there's a blog that we both read for a while called China Law Blog, and they've been around since mm-hmm. 2006 or 2005. It's a very, very long time. Uh, but it's a, it's a tiny firm in rural Washington state. It's out in the boonies there somewhere. And this guy and his partner had been writing about, you know, just legal issues in China and businesses going to China and the hurdles that they were trying to clear and those sorts of things. And as a result of them just writing this blog, they got major international business. And it's because they they were seen over time as thought leaders, as people who know what they're talking about, that if you have to do something with China, you go to them. And I think in any business, that's what you ultimately want to become. You want to become the standard. You want to become the one place, the one firm, the one shop that people associate with the best. And, um, you know, this is one way to do it. It doesn't happen overnight, um, but, but, but it can happen over time. Great. Wait check this out whoa hey check this out no no wait wait oh, check it out check it out i want you to check this out on the pr and law podcast all right you and do you have any uplifting exciting positive things to talk about <laughs> uh no compared to last week <laughs> Uh, well, actually, sorry, I, I guess that's not entirely true. The, you know, sort of the, the the latter shout out that I wanted to get to was just some really, really fantastic records that were released this week, Cam. Um, you know, some weeks you just get just an absolute wealth of of new material and there's so much sometimes it's difficult to to dig into so i'm just going to give some shout outs of a few names and then i'll talk to my not so um uplifting point um matt berninger the front man for the national um you know pretty pretty big once upon a time a, a little known independent rock outfit from the u.s they're now based out of brooklyn um they've become huge Matt's their front man. He just dropped his first solo record called Serpentine Prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, You should check it out. Uh, Kevin Morby, another really cool sort of a really kind of Laurel Canyon kind of kind of vibe. Um, He just dropped a record called Sundowner, which he interestingly recorded on a four track so that's exactly what it sounds like. Cam, a good old fashioned reel to reel where you can only put down a maximum of four tracks and it all is just guitar, vocals, bass, drums. That's it. That's your four cool. tracks on pretty much every song. And it's a really warm kind of lazy Sunday afternoon kind of record. Um, check that out. And James Blake, if uh, if you want something a little more dancey, he dropped a really cool EP named uh, or titled before so there's a few few records for anybody who's interested in in, in perusing the new music of the week um sorry the, the, not, the so- matt berenger one um <laughs> is it similar to the national or does he have a different sound on his own um you know it it's it's probably it is quite similar to sort of the more down tempo 
tracks that the national do. Um, that's the, the overall, the overall vibe of the record. Um, there's nothing, nothing really, really kind of crazy and, and raucous, like what you might find on a, on a national record. Um, so yeah, if you're sort of into his more kind of down tempo vibe, I think you'll probably like this. He collaborated with Booker T Jones, who, you know, a lot of people, might know a really really great musician that's just been around for you know for decades and somehow the two hooked up and you know his his fingerprints are all over this record it's a really just cool well-produced kind of down tempo again also sort of a sunday afternoon rainy day kind of kind of record nice nice yeah um and now for my not my my perhaps not quite as, as uplifting piece. I wanted to talk about an article that I read on Buzzfeed actually can by, uh, and I hope, I hope I'm getting this author's name, right. Scatchy. I think it's pronounced. It's spelled S C A A C H I cool. K O U L is her last name. Okay. Wait. Um, and the title is that photo of Billie Eilish isn't brave. It's just typical. Um, I'm sure you saw this on social media, Cam. I, I think if you were on, if you're on Twitter, you're on social media, I don't know how you could have missed it. There was a photo that came out of Billie Eilish, um, you know, wearing a tank top, yes. a pair of shorts and flip flops and socks. And people just kind of went berserk. Um, you know, somebody, somebody on Twitter said in, in 10 months, Billie Eilish has developed a mid thirties wine mom body. Um, despite the fact that, you know, she's 18 years old and just a lot of body shaming. And what was sort of interesting, and this is what this article sort of touches on, is that a lot of women very quickly chimed in and some men to say that, you know, Eilish was being brave um, in having a body that's sort of atypical for celebrities. And she really, really pushes back on this notion that doing so is somehow brave um that being considered brave for living in a particular type of body suggests that that body whatever shape and size is somehow always functioning at a disadvantage um you know as if eilish is weakened by her very average looking arms and normal circumference torso and that's part of a quote and i just wanted to read this rest uh, this is this is a quote from the article and then uh, and then i'll leave it there but Quote, there isn't anything brave about Eilish having the body of an adult woman, no more brave than it is for someone to have brown hair or green eyes. Calling someone brave for merely existing in the body they have doesn't take power away from thinness, and it doesn't create any kind of equilibrium in culture. There might be no bravery involved, just genetics. It's just a body and you get the one you get. It has no moral value on its own. Insisting upon being alive and comfortable isn't ballsy. It's just a far better option than self-loathing. And I really think she hits the nail on the head here, Cam. This idea that, you know, it's somehow brave to walk around in your own skin. It, it, we're sending the wrong message again and again and again about women's bodies. And really it is women's bodies because let's be honest, this is not really an issue that comes up very often with men. Um, and we, we've just got to, we've got to switch the channel. We got to get, we got to, we got to get the message right on this. You know, the, I think this is a whole other discussion. Uh, there's several things in there that would be good discussion points. Um, but obviously, we're not going to go through all of it. But I, I, I did just call the article up. But yeah, I'm definitely going to read this because um, it is it is fascinating topic, actually. 
uh, I just had two quick things to to mention today. One of them is actually a portrait. I don't know if you saw this, Ewan, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, she has a new Canadian oh, yeah. portrait. So this is to mm-hmm. be hung basically in all of our sort of government facilities in Canada as the as our sovereign. So she's wearing the Canadian insignia as the sovereign of the Order of Canada and Order of Military Merit. It's a it's a great photo. It's um it's not often that we, especially outside of Canada, think of it as a uh, member of the Commonwealth or as the Queen being our our head of state. Uh, ultimately. Uh, but this is a reminder of that and that that tie is still quite strong. And uh, the picture is is great. So I'll put a put a link in the show notes on that one. Just on that point, Cam, wasn't there a bit of a controversy around this? Because as I understand, she was for this photo, she was wearing the Belgium Sapphire tiara or tiara. Yes. Uh, right. Yes. And that I, I guess, you know, Canadians being Canadians were probably upset about that to some degree. But yeah, I know she was wearing it. I don't know about the controversy in, in Canada. Um, unfortunately, I don't get a lot of that news over here. Uh, yes, but, we are a fickle but, bunch sometimes. <laughs> very, very sensitive us Canadians, uh, you know. Um, and the second one, I, you and we've you and I have talked about this offline. I think it's come up on the show once. Um it's the issue of Taiwan, and I'm honestly quite concerned. I don't want to sound like the wacko uncle out there, but we have a lot of evidence to suggest that China is looking at a military invasion of Taiwan soon. There's an article in the South China Morning Post today titled, Chinese Military Beefs Up Coastal Forces as It Prepares for Possible Invasion of Taiwan. There's been a lot happening on the coast. Um, I mean, not to go into too much detail on the on this podcast, but you know, China got a new president in 2012, uh, Xi Jinping. He has moved quickly to ba- basically make him the the uh, a Mao uh, of present day China. He's now president for life. He got rid of the term limits. He's consolidated power um, to a very high degree, and he has said from day one that he will be the person who reunites Taiwan with China. And he said it openly. He said it openly many times. And um, based on sort of China's behavior in Xinjiang, in Tibet, you know, what they did here in Hong Kong, um, in my own view, it's showing um, very little regard for world opinion. Um, It's not it's no longer constrained by that. And um, with some of the chaos in the United States around the election and with COVID still running rampant uh, and with problems in many parts of the world, uh, you know, it's, it's creating some pretty, pretty fertile ground for, for China to move on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you and I have talked about this many, many times, mostly off air. Um, You know, as, as you know, I, I lived in Taipei, Taiwan for, for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. It's just a really, incredible place and again we don't have time for me to to talk about all of the merits of of how wonderful taiwan is um but you know this 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 just it 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 breaks my heart and it and it makes me really really concerned um i still have a number of friends there but just for the taiwanese people who have really been doing such a fantastic incredible admirable job um, over the last few decades in building um, a really, really, really fruitful and stable democracy. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm really, really terrified um, 
as to where this is going to going to end. Yeah, and I I noticed that it's kind of been happening in the background because there's so much going on around the world that I mean I've lived over here since 2004. Usually when there's moves towards Taiwan or there's sort of um, increasing tensions in the in the Taiwan Strait, it gets quite prominent international coverage. But this is kind of flying below the radar a little bit, just because yeah, we are in a U.S. presidential election cycle, and you know, COVID is around, and um, you know, there's other sort of race issues happening in the U.S. and and um, you know, Europe is not in a good economic state at the moment. I mean, I don't think this is getting the attention it deserves because I think if if China does go in there. And take it with force. Uh, the world is heading to a dark place, um, and so yes, it is concerning. I don't want to be, like I say, waving the the flag and jumping up and down and saying we should panic, um, but I do think this is something we should pay attention to. Great. So um, let's leave on that it there. note. <laughs> on that really wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, uplifting, uplifting note. Um, Anything you want to <laughs> chime in with you and to end on a positive note. <laughs> Uh, I no no I'm I'm just sad now I'm just I'm I'm just sad but um, yeah well yeah, go yeah. listen to those uh, those new new albums that dropped that'll be uh, that maybe will cheer you up a bit and for yeah, the listeners perhaps. too yeah give it a shot um, so uh, we have come to the end of episode twenty eight I still can't believe we've done this many shows already it feels like we just started um, but we do appreciate you joining you and I on the show it, it does mean a lot to us and it's great to see the the numbers continuing to increase uh, it's huge support um, so you can follow us on social media to not miss a show uh, Twitter Instagram Facebook and LinkedIn we're also on YouTube and SoundCloud and I mentioned our new newsletter, please sign up for this. Uh, We are sending out notifications of new episodes and we intend to send out other show news later, but we will not spam you or sell your your email address or do anything like that. Uh, It's perfectly secure. Uh, So thank you again Uh, for you and Christy. This is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewing Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.